Well, good morning, church. I'm glad to see faces here, uh, and I'm glad that you're joining us here on the live stream today. Thank you for being with us this morning. Um, today is the last of our three-part series called United over the book of Philippians. And if you've missed the first two today, I just wanted to recap the first two, uh, because we have seen uh, how Paul describes to this church in Philippi how unity stems outward from the self. So we've talked about the united self. And, and the tagline that we had there is, the united self is the one that sees, interacts with, and is transformed by the resurrected Jesus. And then Paul goes on to expound that and say, if there is division in the church, then that should affect how you treat one another. And so last week we talked about the United Church. And the United Church is one that is composed of individuals relentlessly asking, what does love require of me? Especially while in conflict with each other. And now we're going to be talking about the United World. We're going to be taking that on a bigger scale and seeing how that speaks to the world that we live in as a whole. And it seems like a far cry from reality to talk about a united world, but Paul actually thinks that that is possible, that there is such a thing as the united world. Uh, but before we look at that, we have to talk a little bit about Paul's world. And specifically, I want to talk about the city of Philippi. Uh, this is where the church is located that is receiving this letter. And I want to take you on a little bit of a tour there to get you to see some of the sights uh, that, that would have greeted you in the city of Philippi, and we'll see what was important to the people at this time. So to start with, I want to point out that Philippi here at the top of our map uh, is just right off the coast in northern Greece. Uh, it's situated on this very important trade route. So this tiny little city became this booming merchant town. Uh, it's a very, very wealthy, luxurious city, mostly because of its gold mines. And since it's on this trade route, we get people from all over the Roman Empire, day in and day out, maybe spreading uh, the good news of what Rome is like, what Rome has been doing recently, uh, the military conquests, the new buildings that have gone up, what the new Caesar has done. So there's always this, this bustle of activity that's on this road. The city was still very, very small geographically, but it was still a very important one because of its position here. And it was ruled by these two Roman military officers who were appointed directly from Rome. And this is the kind of thing that was done in other Roman colonies. So Philippi held its head up as some place that was very important to Rome. We are a colony of Rome. And so as you are in this town, you are holding your head up high as a, as a beacon of Roman culture to this world. And maybe as you live your life, you go and you see a, a show, a play in this massive theater that was built in on the hillside uh, that was recently unearthed. This was actually the biggest theater in all of Greece, uh, and it was built on the side of this hill that overlooked the ocean. And maybe... Uh, your average citizen would spend some time at, at what was called the Roman Forum in the exact center of town. This was the hub, the meeting place, where, where everyone came together to talk, to share. This was the center of commerce as we had marketplaces here. But more importantly, it served as the religious center of the town. 
There were a ton of local cults that you could align yourself with here in town. There were small ones uh, devoted to Roman gods like Jupiter, who's a copyright-friendly version of Zeus from the Greek world. Uh, And there's some other uh, Greek gods worshipped there as well, like Artemis or Dionysius. Uh, Artemis, the goddess of hunting and uh, and of solitude, and Dionysius, really the party god, which explains a lot based on uh, their lifestyle and the amount of money that existed here. And perhaps the, the biggest of these, of these cults was devoted to this figure called the Thracian horseman, a, a figure always pictured on his horse with either a dog or a cow beneath him. Uh, I really don't know how they mixed that up in the story, but it was one of the two. And this figure was known as a Roman myth from the early days, meant to represent uh, the pride of Rome. He he was a figure representing uh, military conquest and freedom. Uh, To think about this in our terms, it's kind of like if we were to worship Paul Bunyan. Uh, it, it, It seems a little odd to us, but this was a really important figure to them. And of course, the most common means of worship at this time was worshiping the emperor, Uh, As we see here, this is an altar from emperor worship inscribed with various figures of an emperor's time. Religious zeal that met with pride in the empire meant that these emperors, both living and dead, adopted the figure of God, and they became someone very important to be worshipped. And walking around town, you might have coins like this in your pocket featuring a very flattering image of Nero, who was tragically born before Photoshop. Uh, but, but, but these coins often talked about the divinity of the emperor. They often bore words like God or Savior or answer to our prayers. It was hard to, to separate religion from Rome. They were inescapably tied together at this time. And, and this wasn't obligatory. This was celebratory the best days of the year when, was when it was time to worship this emperor because we would have these massive feasts that would involve the entire city of Philippi. There would be this huge parade procession towards the center of town that involved every single person that lived there. The catch was it was organized by social status with those two Roman uh, military leaders at the front of the line and then regular citizens behind them, and then at the very back you had freed people and slaves. It was a way to communicate, here is your status before the emperor, before our God. And there were, there were games held similar to the Olympics in the emperor's honor, fighting who was the most worthy of honor before Caesar. And of course there was the food. A massive feast was held. They ate basically sunup to sundown. And this was held about ten times a year, Uh, on special days anywhere from an emperor's birthday to a date of military conquest. They would sacrifice food to the emperor, send up prayers. This was the most Roman place in the world, outside of Rome itself. And getting to be a citizen here was a big deal. This was a point of pride amongst the citizens. Because if you can't physically be in Rome, the height of culture in the world, the height of military power, then being a citizen of Rome elsewhere in the empire is the next best thing. Roman citizenship was something to be held with pride, especially in an empire of this size. 
that exerted this amount of power on the world. If you were a citizen, you enjoyed so many more benefits that non-citizens did not get. Things like uh, you got to more fully enjoy Roman protection. Local governments were terrified of doing anything against a Roman citizen for the fear that this would be seen as an act of rebellion that Rome would then send their soldiers to to quash. Plus, there were Roman soldiers in just about every city, and they weren't there to protect the little guy. They were there to protect the Roman citizens because that's who they were as well. And around the Roman Empire, you got this safer and easier travel. Think like uh, the European Union. Uh, It was much easier to get from place to place because you were a Roman citizen. You were not seen as a threat as you moved around the empire. It's much easier, it's much cheaper, it's much faster to travel if you are a Roman citizen. And there's this emphasis on the Roman culture, the Roman uh, culture, uh, the Roman laws, something to be proud of. You can tell we're Romans, we're a part of the best culture in the world by the way that we live. We want to reflect outwardly that we're a part of this great nation. We follow the customs, we follow the laws. People can tell just by looking that we are Roman citizens. And perhaps most importantly, Roman citizens got lower taxes. Romans were exempt uh, from a number of, of these foreign taxes that were imposed on the people that they conquered. This was one of the ways that Rome pretended to be a charitable government. When they conquered an area, they allowed them to remain their cultural identity so long as they paid for it. A ridiculously steep amount of taxes. And this partly explains why tax collectors in the gospel are bad guys. They're vilified. Uh, Some of them were crooked. Some of them did steal openly from their neighbors. But even if they didn't, they were still working with this oppressive empire, working to bleed dry their family, their friends, their neighbors. But of course, not if you're a Roman citizen. And it's this notion of citizenship that Paul is going to directly challenge in his letter to the Philippians. It's this scene that they are surrounded by, an area that is fully and enthusiastically devoted to Rome. And here's his advice to the church in Philippi. We're going to continue reading in chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But pay attention to this next verse. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hang on to that language because it's going to be important. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. So Paul makes a pretty bold move here when he's talking about citizenship. Addressed to this community, remember, we're, we're deep in the heart of we heart Rome country. 
We're waving the flag every day. And in this territory, he is redefining their notion of citizenship. He says, take everything that you know about this idea of citizenship and shift it and move it over this direction. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And with that comes a new set of values and customs and experiences. We don't need the protection of Rome because we have the protection of the kingdom of heaven. And we're not much concerned about money because we're called to give up everything we have to follow our king. And we have our own way of doing things too. Not big, lavish festivals clamoring for honor and prestige. No, service and love, and sacrifice, and joy. That's what citizenship looks like in our kingdom. You may have a few feasts a year, but every time we gather, once a week, we feast on the body and blood of our Savior. Paul encourages Christians to be like the Romans, who are so proud of their culture, and like the Romans, it should be immediately evident to the surrounding culture what nation you belong to. Paul has exhibited this in so many different ways in this letter. He said that he considers everything he once bragged about to be garbage, to be useless. He's instructed others to think of uh, other people as better than themselves. And early in chapter 1, while talking about being in prison, he says that it doesn't much matter to him what happens. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is demonstrating again and again in this letter that he belongs to a culture completely separate from the one around him. He comes from the kingdom of heaven. And if anyone were asking, what makes you so different? Why do you act this way? Why are you different than everyone around you? He would not hesitate for one second in his answer. He would say, it's because of the king. It's because of the king that I serve. Far and away, the most important piece of culture that we can model in this world is the type of king that we align ourselves with. We know who really has the power, and it's not that Caesar in his faraway palace that his face shows up on some coins. It's a different kind of conqueror altogether. His empire was started with violent bloodshed, but it was his own blood that was shed on our behalf as he willingly went to his death. And now we, the church, are tasked with continuing his work, carrying on as part of his empire. And this tells us that in Paul's understanding, if we are citizens of heaven, then the church is a colony of heaven. Let's think about this for just a minute. Let's draw some parallels here. In this analogy, Rome, this, this massive empire of all the power, this is the kingdom of heaven, and we, the church, the colony, are Philippi. We in the church are subject to the kingdom of heaven. That means we abide by its rules, we share its values, and we follow its customs. This means we'll likely be living in a much different way than the people around us. Because our highest priority must be to live as one who is from the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul uses the same uh, root word as citizenship in his instruction to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's the same root uh, that we get the word politic from. 
One commentator suggests that this could be translated as live as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel. But more than that, more than a simple embodiment of values, we are a springboard. We're a checkpoint. We're a place for the kingdom's influence to begin to spread to the world outward. As a colony, our goal isn't conquest. No one in Philippi was determined to march north and conquer these lands on behalf of Rome. Citizenship was a cause for celebration. Citizenship was a wonderful thing, and they wanted to bask in it and show their understanding that there is nothing better than being a citizen of this, the greatest kingdom the world has ever known. They're celebrating their citizenship. And most importantly, at every chance we get as the colony of the kingdom of heaven, we are proclaiming who the real king is. We are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And Paul is proving all along that there is no king like Jesus. Our king doesn't look anything like what you would expect a king to look like. Does your king measure greatness by the number of people serving him? Because ours got on his knees and washed our feet. Your king is a conquering military hero. Ours died for us on our behalf. Yours lives in a palace in Rome. Ours is king of heaven and all of the earth. And if we think about this practice that they had in this parade of organizing themselves by rank, this speaks even louder. Because what Paul says in the second chapter, what we talked about last week, that our king emptied himself, humbled himself, lowered himself on our behalf. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus showed himself to the back of that parade so that we could be a little closer to the front, so that we could hold our heads a little bit higher. And because of this, God exalted him to the very highest place above heaven and earth. And what's even better, notice the language in verse 20. It's very, very subtle. It is from there that we are expecting a Savior. It's hard to overstate how incredibly ridiculous this is to be expectant of the king to come to you. Being granted an audience before Caesar was reserved for the most important people in the empire, and he didn't come to you. You had to make the trip to Rome. But Paul is saying not only do we get a free audience with our king, he is coming to us to make his rule known here and now because that's the kind of king that he is. Philippi was living in a way that glorified this distant, far-off city of Rome. And Paul reminded the Christians here that one day, when Jesus came back, the kingdom would be fully realized in all its glory here and now. Colony becomes kingdom as Jesus brings the full strength of heaven to establish his rule forever here. And all we have to do is look up and worship and say that Jesus is king. Now I know it would be kind of easy this morning to hear this sermon and to think that it has absolutely nothing to do with unity. To say that it actually sounds kind of divisive to be this sole colony in the middle of some hostile land against it. 
But I want to remind you what we're looking forward to. Remember the passage from Isaiah 45. It's referenced by Paul in Philippians, and it says that God knows to him at the end of all times, to him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And today we're going to remind ourselves of what exactly awaits us. Here's how John describes it in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, You are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We as Christians know the ending. We are shown a direct roadmap of the scene that all of creation, all of history has been leading to from the very first moment when God said, let there be light. All people from every nation and tribe and people and language, in front of the throne of the true king, united in worship. This is what we get to look forward to because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. And if you came this morning hoping to hear about how we will unite the world, I I think I'm going to leave you disappointed. Nothing in the Bible tells us that we will be able to do that. But it will happen all the same through the power and glory of King Jesus. The world sadly won't ever be united by our actions or our opinions. But this should again be good news. The end time, the final unity does not hinge on how we act. But it should certainly affect how we act. To put that another way, the kingdom of God isn't coming any faster because of what we do, but it is coming. And knowing that, we've got to do something. This series, we've talked about unity stemming from the self, how it all comes back to a single-minded focus on the sacrificial love displayed by King Jesus. Paul's understanding is that there is no part of the Jesus story that shouldn't change you as a person. 
Because of Jesus, we are set free from the need to justify ourselves before God. And because of that, our self-worth is determined in our favor. Because of Jesus, we have the example of emptying yourself and being humble so that we can engage in conflict in a healthy way within the church. And because of Jesus, we know the direction that this world is going. We know how the story ends. And we are free not to worry about our time here on earth, but to celebrate in what God has accomplished. Unity is a tricky thing. But if you're left with one takeaway from this series, just one thing, I hope it is the fact that the only thing you can control is yourself. And Paul all throughout the book of Philippians, is pleading with this church, trying to get them to see that the more we can look like Christ, the more we will be unified. Until such a time when Christ returns and finishes the job once and for all. We are the people who praise the true king now. Not for any prize or reward but because we are so grateful to be citizens in a kingdom like this, because there is no kingdom quite like this. Let's pray together. I'm going to begin with Paul's words. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Father, we ask for your presence among us. We ask that we can be good stewards of the culture that comes from the kingdom of heaven. God, help us to endure as a colony as we work to spread the influence of King Jesus, not out of obligation, but out of celebration. God, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us. God, I ask that as much as it depends on us, we can be united and that we can leave all the rest to you. God, give us the peace to accept that. And God, we look forward to the day when we will all be united together in front of your throne, praising you. It is in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen.